Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Global Parents for Eczema Research is an international network of parents that advocates for better treatments and management options for children with eczema. Jeeper is led and comprised of parents of children with eczema and was formed in 2015 to address the critical need for research that answers questions of importance to patients and families. Learn more about Jeeper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Hello and welcome everybody. I'm Corey with Global Parents for Eczema Research and I'm so glad you could join us today for this episode of our podcast. I want to give a quick plug for a study we have going on right now on the impact of eczema on family life decisions. So if you are a parent of a child with eczema, we'd really appreciate your participation. And you can find out more on our webpage at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Now let's get started. I'm super happy to introduce my co-host today and guest speaker. Angela Tiru is a parent of a child with moderate to severe eczema and an active member of our group. She's also a professor of psychology in Connecticut, and she'll be co-hosting today. Welcome, Angela. And our guest is Dr. Elaine Siegfried. She's the director of the Division of Pediatric Dermatology at St. Louis University and Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital. She specializes in treatments for pediatric eczema and has been involved in several clinical trials that have led to advancements in new drugs. I've met Dr. Siegfried several times at the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance annual meeting, where she's always been welcoming and eager to to connect with patient and parent groups. Dr. Siegfried, welcome to the podcast. I want to kick off the discussion today with a bit of a controversial topic. We often hear doctors say, you know, parents don't follow prescription instructions and they're not using topical steroids as they're supposed to. And our own studies have shown really low um, rates of what we call adherence to prescribed topical therapies. And I think one of the reasons for that is parents have a lot of fears about the side effects associated with those. On top of that, a lot of patients are using them really long-term, like not just for a few days or a few weeks, but pretty constantly and sometimes for years. Compounding all of these issues is that we just don't have great data on what those risks are. So I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. What do we and don't we know about topical steroids and the risks that they pose to pediatric patients? You know, the most commonly used topical corticosteroid is triamcinolone, and we have really no data in kids about that at all. Got no short-term data, no long-term data. That's the most common one. Um, uh, For the the newer corticosteroids that really have pediatric data, the longest that we have is four weeks. Um, And even for the low-potency topical corticosteroids like fluticasone, um, at four weeks, adrenal suppression, which is really the only objective measure that we have of safety. Um, It's not a good measure at all, but it's the only one that we have. But even for a low potency product used just for four weeks, there was some adrenal suppression. For stronger products like Mometazone, which is one of my favorites because it's one of the low allergenicity topical corticosteroids, the adrenal suppression rate at two weeks was, uh, you know, well over 50%. 
So you have to just know how to use these medications safely. And if you, if you use a medicine that you take by mouth, you say, take a pill a day or take a teaspoon a day. But with topical corticosteroids, people give you uh, a medication and they say, you know, use it, but don't use too much. And they don't tell you how much to use. And even worse than that, there's about a 30% dispensing error. So Dr. Siegfried, if I could interrupt you just for a second, can you explain what you mean by dispensing error? Is that something that the pharmacist gets wrong for the patient? When, a, when, a, when I write a prescription for a topical corticosteroid, and for years I had patients bring in their tubes because that was the only way that I could trace it, there was about a 30% dispensing error. So either the error was in the vehicle, you know, I'd write for an ointment, they'd get a cream, or it was in the concentration, tacrolimus, I'd write for 0.03, they'd get 0.1, or, um, or the quantity, and that was probably the most common. You know, I'd write for 45 grams, they'd get 15 grams. And so, you know, if you use too little, it doesn't work. And if you use too much, it's bad for you. But the most important thing is monitoring how much you're using. And it's unlike oral medications because you don't take it the same amount all the time. You know, you take your blood pressure medicine, you take the same amount all the time. You use more when you're doing bad and you use less when you're doing good. So just the details of understanding how to safely use and effectively use topical corticosteroids, are, it's just complicated. It really is. And I'm really glad you said that because we hear about noncompliance with medications, um, which sort of ignores the fact that this is exceedingly complicated for even the most sophisticated patient. And we're talking about parents who have been up all night, they're exhausted, and it makes it even more difficult. So I just really think we need to acknowledge how challenging the go-to treatment for eczema can be. And paying attention to the complex, what I call complex topicals, the other stuff that you're putting on your skin, you know, and paying attention to staying off of antibiotics, which can really wreak havoc with your microbiome. You want to do everything that you can to restore your barrier function and get it back into balance. So those little bitty details are often overlooked by a lot of clinicians. And I think that that's one of the reasons that um, topical corticosteroid is less safe and less effective than it, than it has to be. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's really important to note that there have not been studies that are long-term. Four weeks is not how long these kids are using these topical steroids. They're using oh, them yeah. for years. And it's ludicrous when, when, they, when they deny using Dupixin and they tell me I should use Mometazone on a, you know, on a one-year-old. It's a good point. And it's probably a great segue because we want to talk about new treatments today. And for the longest time, we had just one choice, which was uh, topical steroids, which we've been talking about already. And now, all of a sudden, we have a bunch of new choices, and we want to really dig into those today. And these new options may have fewer side effects than the mainstays that we've had so far. So I wondered if you could give us a quick overview of what to expect and what are the most promising new topical therapies that are coming for pediatric eczema. For right now, I think that topical corticosteroids actually work really well. But the devil is in the details with how you use these medicines. So it's going to be very, very difficult to create a product that works better. Um, but, we, what, but what I think the focus is on is creating products that are going to be um, safer for long-term use. So then if you go back and you sort of talk about the JAK inhibitors, the JAK inhibitors are, I think, kind of like topical corticosteroids in that 
they work very quickly, or at least have the promise to work very quickly. But long-term safety is another consideration. And I think that's just globally true about all drugs. In general, a, a drug that's strong and works quickly is going to be a little bit higher risk for uh, long-term um, safety pro problems. So I think we have to be very respectful of that, and especially when we're treating children, and especially when we're treating very young children. And I do think it's really important um, to, to get um, especially atopic dermatitis under control early, because I personally think that that may have an impact on the long-term um, duration of the disease. I think you can impact immune maturation. I, you know, that's my personal opinion. We don't have enough great evidence to support that. But um, the way trials are designed, and this is, you know, from the FDA, it's never going to change, is that trials are done in adults first. And if there are drugs that aren't really effective in adults, they don't really go on to being studied in children. And, and children and infants are last, uh, even though with this disease, I think it's probably most important to learn about how these drugs work in infants because they really have the greatest unmet need. What are, I mean, are you looking ahead sort of thinking, are any of these new therapies going to be better for very long-term use when currently, you know, some of these young kids are on topical steroids for years and years and years trying to control the eczema? So just wondering if um, any of these might be a safer long-term option than what we have now. Just to um, I, I don't know about comparatively safer to Elodel and, and Protopic. I mean, we've been fighting for years to get that black box removed. You know, we have great long-term data for those drugs. And, and I just, I, you know, I, I have yet to, you know, have enough data and certainly no experience with the other options um, to be able to say that. But, but I also think that the biggest advances that have been made, especially for um, severe, moderate to severe disease, are in recognizing that atopic dermatitis is not just a skin disease. You know, it's just, it's a marker of systemic um, atopy. And atopy is disordered immune, you know, response. You know, people are, immune systems are going berserko about things that the rest of us tolerate. So, you know, it's going to be important to really, I think in the long run, and what I'm hoping for and what I really am working towards are helping with drug development that's going to impact um, the long-term progression of the disease and, and to focus on early control. And that's really, I'm a big fan of targeted biologics because, you know, once we can hone in on, you know, what the different phenotypes are and then addressing them with the right targeted molecules, that's what I think has the most hope. I have hope in biomarkers and distinguishing between the different kinds of eczema and then targeting that with the right, you know, biologic therapy. You know, I, I don't have as much enthusiasm really for the jacks. I think the jacks are going to be kind of like topical corticosteroids. They're kind of like cyclosporin. You know, they're a get-you-clear drug, right? I don't think they're a long-term keep-you-clear drug, and they're not um, targeted enough, I think, to have as much of an impact on um, immune maturation. Okay, that's really helpful. I'm going to let Angela ask the next question, but I guess I was just curious when you were talking, I mean, given what you've said, given that eczema is not just a skin condition, it's immune dysregulation, it's, a, it's a, the immune system run amok, you know, do these topical strategies 
I mean, are, are they really going to get to the root of the problem, which is to correct the runaway immune system? Or is a biologic targeted approach really going to be the way to go? Or, you know, is it the way to go with a subset of eczema patients? Um, and, you know, so we just need to figure out which of those we need to target with an immune therapy versus something like a topical, and a new yeah. topical. And I do think that timing is really critical for atopic dermatitis, just like for some other conditions that we commonly treat. Hemangioma of infancy, for example, is a birthmark, you know, that has a finite um, uh, growth period. And if you, but we know now because, you know, we have a serendipitous drug that if you treat that early, you can really make a big impact. But if you wait too late, you know, forget it. The cat's already out of the bag. And I think, I think it's the same thing, you know, in a sense for, you know, inflammatory skin disease. But having said that, you know, we, we still have lots of patients who've, who've, who are past that opportunity to impact the early disease. And, and also we have a lot of patients who have just mild disease. Once we have a better way to help predict, you know, who's going to have a mild course or who's likely to outgrow it, then we'll be able to address treatment that way. And, and to tell you the truth, again, you know, topical treatment, and even drugs like methotrexate, which really work pretty well, are, are really sufficient for kids who have mild or moderate disease. It's really the subset that has, you know, moderate or severe disease or also has, you know, panatopy. That's what I call it when you got, you know, multimorbidities going on. And that's the, those are the patients who suffer the most, who have the worst disease. And, and those are the ones I think that that the newer innovations are going to impact the most. The mild to moderates, you know, the ones that outgrow their disease, I mean, yeah, sure, it does have an impact early on, you know, in infancy and early childhood, but it's, it's, they're not in the same league at all. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So it's a completely different animal. So our next question, um, you've answered some of it. So if you want to uh, pick and choose or maybe emphasize the tipping point aspect, but we asked you, um, tell us a little bit more about the JAK inhibitor creams. They seem to work really well against itch, which is a welcome finding given that we currently have so few therapies that quell itch. Um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of the JAK approach compared to what we have now? You kind of already touched on that. Um, is the anti-itch action the most important feature here? We know that itch is a symptom that is often overlooked. And and so is this a unique feature of the JAK inhibitor? And then lastly, what is the percentage of the body surface area that's appropriate for a topical treatment? Meaning if we're gonna have both topical JAK inhibitors and oral JAK inhibitors, in your opinion, what is the tipping point where you would go from topical to oral? Yeah, I think that's been really well-defined, you know, because because the psoriasis trials really led the way in, you know, in, into trying to distinguish, well, who's a candidate for systemic therapy? So if you're just talking about skin disease, it's 10% body surface area. But really, um, unlike psoriasis, people who have eczema, you know, they're, they're invo- their skin that even looks normal is involved. So it, it's, it's, it is about, you know, percent body surface area, but it's also about you know, just response to treatment. And, and I, again, I think topical corticosteroids are a great treatment. They work, but um, you can't use them long-term. Uh, it, well, I mean, you can, but you got to monitor the, the way that you use them. And so the details of successful topical treatment are so dependent on um, p- 
patients understanding how to use them safely and effectively. And most people um, in, in any disease you're talking about, you know, I don't care if it's diabetes or hypertension or obesity, people don't want to think about treatment as in preventative way. It's just harder. And with, with eczema, which is unlike diabetes, you know, it's not going to kill you, right? It's just going to make your life miserable. So people just go from flare to flare to flare. And, and that's a way to potentiate the disease. So any topical treatment, unless you, unless you have a topical treatment that's just going to be able to carry you from flare to flare to flare, you know, turn it off and then maybe it'll come back later and you turn it back on again. But I don't think there's any treatment like that that's going to exist. So that, so then besides body surface area, it's just, you know, who can handle it? Sometimes, and as, as I'm sure all the parents here of children who have moderate to severe disease, children are get habituated to the not tolerating the pain of baths and topical medications, and they hate the grease, and they just don't want to use topical treatment. And I don't think that it's, um, it's, it's um, realistic to expect them to do that. You know, for a long, long time, it was, oh, you know, these people just aren't adhering. And if they would just get with the program, we would just, you know, be, they would do fine. But have, you know, I, I don't have to smear grease on my body every day or sit in a bathtub every day. I mean, I, I don't have the time for that. And so I, I, I can't imagine really how anybody would. I do see some parents who really make it look easy, <laughs> you know, but, but there are more that just can't handle it. The biggest indication for admitting children to the hospital was that they just couldn't handle topical care at home. So we did, you know, intensive care with wet wraps and, and some of it was providing education. And frankly, some of it was just breaking that horrible cycle of fighting between parents and children because, you know, they, they get stuck in a rut that, you know, every time they want to put their child into the bathtub and some parents just force them to do it. And some kids, especially kids who are not sleeping, they just, they won't tolerate it. And you can't, make them tolerate it. When you get strangers involved doing the skincare, sometimes that really helps, you know, it helps break that cycle. But it, it's, it's a difficult problem to, to use topical treatment for, for kids who have severe disease. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that you say that because I think the, the time requirements of some of these therapies is really underappreciated. And for two working parents, multiple kids, you know, you're, you're putting in basically a second job on top of this for these people. And I mean, I would speak from experience. It's just, you know, the bathing, the creams, the wrapping, um, the, all the other things you do around the house to try to keep allergens at, at bay. It's really not feasible for a lot of people who have, you know, busy lives and who are struggling on with other things, especially. So I really appreciated that you brought up that point. I think topical therapy, when you say it like that, sounds easy, but in reality, especially with some of these kiddos who are on multiple different topical thera therapies and they're stepping up and they're stepping down and they're bathing and they're doing all these other things, it's just a huge, huge amount of work that parents are taking on for a very long time. They get burned out. And then as the kids get older, it's a lot to ask a young child to take that on themselves. So Yeah. And you're talking about, you know, health literate families. You know, I have a giant population of families that don't have great health literacy and don't have resources and, and have a lot of other social challenges. And, and for those children, I, you know, that's, that's another 
big aspect of the of the problem uh, that needs to be recognized. You know, it, it, you know, like I, you can't blame people for for not being able to handle that. Especially and so, when some of the applications of the medication actually burn. You know, it's heartbreaking as a parent to put something on that you feel like you're harming them, or you know, you feel like that's how your child feels is that you're harming them when really. You're just doing something in their best interest. And every parent is very different about how they approach these issues. Um, and, and, and some techniques are more successful than others. I mean, some just completely interfere with the parent-child relationship, and it, it, it's, it's, it becomes very difficult. It's the same thing with, you know, sleep hygiene. I mean, we know that itch is an oxygen stimulus that keeps kids from sleeping, but what what you do to address um, this sleeplessness, you know, can either um, help it get better over time or, or per perpetuate the problem until kids are old. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm a parent of a son with moderate eczema, but I'm also a psychologist. So I am absolutely hearing the mental health aspect of it and the family dynamic of it and the connection uh, with you and your child. It's just a horrible position to be in. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Angela, because I feel like those type of impacts, a lot of times people don't see them, but they're pretty profound and, and challenging for families. I want to close us out with a question on topical strategies to address the skin microbiome or the mix of bacteria on the skin. And there's been a couple of big papers that have come out recently about using good bacteria or, or human commensal bacteria um, that might be beneficial and applying it to skin with eczema to see if it resolves symptoms and it looks uh, promising so far. I know this is a very new area, but wondered if you could comment on that type of approach, that type of topical approach and how it might or might not complement some of these other ones. It's hard for me to imagine how a single microbe could make that much of a difference. I think it's got to be, you know, a combination of them because that's what our normal skin has and then the other issue of course is that your you know your your barrier function is is needs to be able to support you know even if you're putting you know uh, good microbes on there but you know the vehicle is going to make a difference and it, it, I think it's a big it's a it's an uphill climb mm -hmm. so a little less bullish on these uh, microbiome probiotic therapies You've given us so much to think about. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Siegfried, if everyone just joined me in thanking our podcast guests. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast.